Welcome to the GSD Factor Podcast Season 2 with your host, Misha Blamire farish Welcome to the GSD Factor Podcast. I'm your host, Misha Blamire farish and today I'm really excited to have Dr. Jim. Hi, Dr. Jim. How are you today? I'm great. How are you, Misha? Thanks for having me on. Great. Uh, Dr. Jim, can you give everybody a little bit of a background about yourself? Yeah, I mean, I think the short version of how I describe myself is I'm a big ass nerd. But if you want a longer uh, description uh, in terms of what I'm involved in, uh, I occupy a pretty unique space where I intersect in the areas of sales, marketing, tech, talent, and DEIB. So if you draw circles around each of those topics, I sit right in the middle of them. And throughout my career, I've been involved in either the HR tech space or the talent acquisition space, uh, either from a services provider perspective or a vendor perspective or, or, or a salesperson perspective. So uh, that's the Cliff Notes version. Um, I think if you're asking me, like, what's my wheelhouse? Obviously, the intersections of all of those within the startup or accelerating growth organization is really where I, uh, I have my sweet spot. Awesome. Well, Dr. Jim, thank you so much for being on with us today. And you and I have had a couple different conversations here over the last few months. And, um, you know, just getting a chance to know you more and work with you. Um, when we think about the GSD factor attributes, um, I think of, you know, be influential whenever I think about you and the work that you do in your community. Um, and so to, to remind all of our listeners you know, when we have that connection to be influential, we are leading by example as actionable leaders, right? We are looking to that future. We're bringing along that next generation alongside us. We're mentoring them. We're coaching them because we want them to stand on our shoulders. And so Dr. Jim, as we think about the work that you do in the community um, and also really specifically focusing on in that area of DEIB, you know, talk our audience through, let's talk about the origins of DEIB and where did it all start and how how has um, the conversations and the work that we are doing, um, you know, and being influential in that, talk us through that a little bit. Sure. So I want to offer a little bit of context before I get into, you know, kind of answering the question. And the context is this, and it's actually more framing than context. I'm not a DEIB practitioner. I'm more or less a DEIB megaphone. So I give platform and audience to those folks that are actually driving that change. So I think that's an important call out because oftentimes because I'm so vocal about these things, people get confused or at least make the make the assumption that I'm a DEIB professional and that's not the case. That's not my area of expertise. Um, my area of expertise is in, in a lot of different uh, spaces, but primarily talent strategy and building elite organizations in a startup context. And part of that, both from a theoretical and practitioner perspective, is that I believe DEIB needs to be embedded through your entire organization from the point that you start. So regardless of function, that's kind of the role that it needs to be in. So when answering the question about the origins of DEIB and why uh, you know I kind of show up the way that I show up, the context that I'll offer is this. So I'm a generation zero immigrant from India and not to like 
you know, go overly long about it. The trigger event that caused my mom to move to the U S or start the process of moving the U S uh, to the U S was when I was r- roughly three years old and had a meltdown in the middle of a grocery store because we couldn't afford an apple. And that's a level of poor that a lot of people don't connect with if they're in an American audience, but that was where I came from. And we eventually got to the U S and fast forward a number of years and now I have a family of my own and kids of my own and knock on wood, my kids will never have to experience that level of, you know, poverty or whatever you want to call it. And that sets the context for why I talk about the things that I talk about, because when you look at that turnaround or whatever phrase you want to use for my own experience, you've seen that in a number of other immigrant populations that have come over and have basically shifted their fortunes. And then you look at, you know, why does DEIB exist? Well, the core purpose of DEIB was to uplift historically marginalized communities and specifically black and indigenous populations. So if large numbers of immigrants can come over here in less than a generation and turn their fortunes around from where I was to where I am now, but you have large populations of people that have been here for a lot longer than anybody else are still sort of in that same rut, then, you know, there's something broken about how DEI is executed. And that's why I call attention to the things that I call attention to. Does that help uh, set the stage or give uh, give context uh, to your question, Misha? Absolutely. And it's really, I, I think it's really important for our listeners Um, to understand those origins and to understand kind of, you know, what was the purpose of DEIB, right? I think um, over the years, the conversation is certainly growing, the microphone is growing. um, And there's certainly been some improvement, but we have much work to be done. Would you agree? Yeah, I absolutely agree. And, And there's an interesting point that you bring up in terms of the work that needs to be done. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna say, don't come after me when I say this. I think one of the things that is wrong with DEIB as currently constructed is that you have all of these dimensions of DEIB that are incorporated into it, and that's all good. So don't get me wrong there. But I think one of the impacts of that dilution is that we've forgotten the original intent of what DEIB was supposed to solve. DIB was supposed to fix a lot of the pervasive issues that indigenous populations and more specifically black Americans faced historically and still face now. And I think it's safe to say that we would all agree that a lot of those same issues exist in those populations currently. So we've kind of allowed ourselves to take our eyes off the ball and focus on these other things without having fixed the original thing that was supposed to be fixed. Agreed. And I think what, when we think about the corporate world, right? I think a lot of times um, organizations look at DEIB, ESG and think, oh, it's just a checkbox that I need to check off, right? Versus saying, what is the work that needs to be done? What is the progress that needs to be made? 
So from your perspective and your experience, when organizations are looking at how they want to make meaningful impact in this area, and not just check a box or not just uh, use it as a prop, so to speak, um, what do you? Where do you think organizations should focus, and where do you think the meaningful work um, is there to really bring about progress for the for the origins of where DEIB was? That's a really good question, and my immediate reaction is, where do you start? Um, and I asked that question. Because honestly, I don't know if many leaders within organizations are ready to answer it in the way that it needs to be answered. Mm. And, and, and here's what I mean. When you look at the world of work, and especially corporate America, there's a lot of DEIB practitioners who are Black who make the argument that DEIB is working as designed. And what they mean by that is when you look at the biggest, um, when you look at leadership in the DEIB ranks, what do you notice about that leadership? Most, and we're talking upwards of 70% of DEIB leaders are white. So when we think about some of the more complex concepts associated with DEI, like intersectionality and being able to speak from a, a position of having been impacted by these experiences, that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to me. And if we look at the original intent of what DEIB was supposed to solve, uh, a lot of it centered on the Black community. Why aren't there more Black leaders in DEI? Um, that's a question that needs to be asked. And the reality of it is that when you look at the data of how DEIB leadership is represented and you look at who's in the seats of power, you know, it, it, it really makes you a bit cynical about is this really looking to make a change or is this just really being used as a prop so that you can at least, you know, create a paper mache version of what, you know, something good is supposed to look like. And that's where a lot of, uh, a lot of people get disillusioned with the nature of the work because you see organizations that fall into the vast majority of organizations will fall into two camps. They'll fall into camp one, which is this stuff is just all fluff. We're not even going to bother talking about it. And then camp two is, oh, let's just do the absolute bare minimum to make it look like we're actually caring about this stuff. But really, we know inside wink, wink, nudge, nudge that this is just a PR effort. And when employees, right, because I do think that employees are going to be the drivers of this change because they are going to be the ones that are calling for the change where, you know, as they are looking at employers or potential employers as, you know, there's a lot of people in the market today that, um, you know, have been in, have been in the late, have been laid off and are looking for the next opportunity when, you know, what are your recommend, recommendations to them? What should they see? What should they look for? And what should they see? And, and, and how should they interpret what they're seeing? Because if they, you know, if this is really 
uh, if it's something that's really important to them, and I hope it's important to them, you know, we want to kind of equip them with those tools so that they can be sure that they're aligning themselves with the right organization. What are just some recommendations, Dr. Jim, that you would say to them to be on the lookout for, to kind of kick the tires, so to speak, and see if these organizations are really living out um, what they say they're living out? So that's that's a great question. And I want to pull some data uh, out before I give my answer. And this points to the disconnect between the broader workforce and executive and corporate leadership. And that's this. And this is publicly available, so it's not just some obscure reference that I'm pulling up. When you look at millennials and Generation Z, so those are the largest cohorts of the workforce as of today. Yeah, 70 to 80% of them are making join or leave decisions uh, from the perspective of work based on how an organization is, com how, how high or how well the organization is committed to DEIB. So that's one data point that you need to look, uh, you need to look at when, you know, almost three quarters or some, in some cases more of your workforce is going to make a decision whether they're going to stick around or even accept or join your organization on the basis of your commitment to DEI. That's an important number to consider. And then you contrast that with, you know, a lot of HR leaders, a lot of executive leaders that are out there in the world of work, you know, and you ask them the question, what, what's the biggest challenge that you're dealing with? They'll say, well, we can't find enough people for our open positions. And you ask that you, the follow-up to that is, well, what's what's your diversity strategy when it comes to that? And it's like, well, we don't really care about the diversity strategy. We just want more people. We, you know, diversity is going to be, and and that's a disconnect between the buyer, which is your candidate, and the seller, which is the organization. So when organizations are completely decoupling their talent strategy from their diversity strategy, that points to a problem in and of itself. So to your question about what should candidates be looking at, my advice is this. One, you need to be careful how you call these things out uh, because if you're not diplomatic, and this sounds weird because I'm not a diplomatic person, I'm pretty direct. If you're not diplomatic in how you ask about these things, you can find yourself not moving forward in a process. But one of the easiest ways to gauge an organization's commitment to DEIB is start at the executive tier and start at the board level and you look at all the seats of power. So I define seats of power as director level and up for a reasonably sized organization. So let's say if it's a, if it's an organization of a thousand people or more, you need to start at the director level uh, as the entry point to a seat of power. And what do you see? Does it represent the customers and the communities that this organization serves? And newsflash for those that don't know, um, if you're a company of any worth, you're probably selling to a global customer base. And guess what? The majority of the global customer base is not white. So as a candidate, you should be looking at those seats of power 
and looking for those faces that are similar to yours if you're from an underrepresented community and then make some assumptions based on that. Now, it's not enough to like observe because every organization is on its own path to wherever they're going. I would certainly ask them, hey, one of the things that I've noticed is that you have a global customer base, but when you look at your senior leadership, uh, it's not visibly diverse. So what's your short-term, mid-term, and long-term plan to get more representation in those ranks? And that is a great question to ask. And you need to call that stuff out because that's the only way leaders within organizations are going to be held accountable for business results. Because if they don't answer that question well, well, you have to make your own decision on whether that's uh, that's something that you need to you want to pursue. Because the reality of it is that if you don't see people like you within that organization at the leadership tier, that sets a ceiling for you realizing your own potential. So it has implications on your career as well. So just out of curiosity, Dr. Jim, when you've asked that question, what are some of the various responses you've received? Uh, I'd love to say they've been substantive, but they haven't. <laughs> And, and, you know, I, I have this, uh, I should, I'm in the process of writing two different books, but I should probably start a third book called corporate word salad. And there's a lot of corporate word salad that comes out when you ask questions like that. Um, you'll often, you know, and here's, here, here's just a small subsection of responses that I've gotten when I've brought up any number of DEIB issues. I've had a former CEO of mine uh mention when i brought up dei as a content element that we needed to talk about you know her response was well dei doesn't pay pay the bills nobody cares about dei so why why are we focusing on that so that's one um i've had other instances and i've had other people in my network uh tell me about instances where they've asked about that representation plan or what's your plan and they've had leaders say along the lines of, I think you'd agree, it, it, we, we, we have a you know robust uh, employee development plan. Uh, and part of that includes you know high potentials and, and identifying those. But I think you'd agree that having some sort of quota system for leadership is probably not a good idea. We've had, yeah, you know, so, yeah, that that that's that's another example of a not great response, but it's it's certainly instructive about what that what that organization's about. You know, we, we we've had I think everybody that's uh, that's asked these sort of questions have heard the uh, the well, we don't have uh, a lot of diversity, but we have diversity of thought. Like that's that's in my top three <laughs> top three of uh, corporate word salad phrases there. So there's, there's, you know, stuff anywhere along those lines that, uh, that gets brought up and all it points to is, Hey, this is likely an organization or a leader that just doesn't care about this stuff. And in terms of how they view you as an employee, they want you to keep your mouth shut, your head down, do what you're told. And, you know, at some point you'll outlive your usefulness and we'll kick you to the curb and find somebody else to do it cheaper. Right. Well, I think those are all examples of what not to say. 
with, you know, within the GSD factor life, we talk about, you know, always learning um, from experiences and learning from those around us. And it's sometimes it's learning what to do and what not to do. And I think that, you know, those are key phrases that I think are really important for people to keep an ear to the ground um, when they're having those conversations, when they're looking for those organizations. And to your point, those are the words, um, you know, leaders, those are the words not to say, but also, you know, prospective employees, those are the words to listen for. And, um, you know, if that is what you're hearing, then to run the other direction. So Dr. Jim, just kind of in these final moments with us, you know, are there any other final thoughts you would like to leave with our listeners today? I think what I would advise, and this is a common theme that, you know, I, I, I tell members of uh, underrepresented communities to adopt, but it's also important for those in the U.S. majority to adopt too. There's an imperative for everyone that's at the employee level, and that's most of us. The time has come for us to be bold, be audacious, be loud, and not back down on the principles that we believe in. Don't be bullied into silence. And you need to be advocating for those around you that are afraid to advocate for themselves. And that's the only way that any of this stuff is going to change. Because... You know, the reality of it is, is that for those who are at the highest levels of power, silence is their favorite song. Mm -hmm. So the more you remain silent, the more they, things stay the same. So stop that. Get loud and call it out. Don't don't go along to get along. If you actually believe that you know, hey, companies should be more representative of the communities that they serve. They should be more representative of the global community. Then you got to call your leaders out and don't let them give you corporate word salad to shut you up. You're pressing, make it uncomfortable because that's the only way that they're going to, anything's going to change. I couldn't agree more. I think it's living that true authentic self and doing so unapologetically and really amplifying that microphone. And if you don't have a microphone, get a microphone or join someone who does. Um, so Dr. Jim, thank you so much for this conversation today. Um, where can people best connect with you? So I'm super active on LinkedIn, so you can easily find me there. Um, you can also, uh, I'm pretty aggressive in terms of the content that I put out. Uh, you can find uh, find a lot of that stuff on uh, under the Cascading Leadership handle. So that's, uh, that's there too. But LinkedIn is the easiest way to have a direct channel to me. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Jim. We really appreciate it. Thank you to our GSC Factor podcast listeners today. Um, and don't forget to get shit done. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to the GSD Factor podcast. If you liked this episode, please rate and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, where you can also find previous episodes. Let's also connect on LinkedIn and Instagram. If you're looking for more information on the GSD Factor, visit us at gsdfactor.com. And always remember to GSD, get shit done.